Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. What's it like working for a small radio station in Miami and ending up at ESPN Radio? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 35 of The Bridge. <laughs> Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you Wednesday nights with the best and brightest in sports news. And what an episode it begs to be once again. I'm doing things a little bit different this week and even next week. But let me first preface that by saying what an incredible response by the loyal listeners of The Bridge for the past two episodes that we had. I was fortunate enough to speak to both members of The Morning Men on Sirius XM's Mad Dog Sports Radio They come to you weekdays every morning from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and do an absolutely amazing job with the show. We first spoke with Mike Babchek, and then we followed that up with Evan Cohen, and I highly recommend you check out those episodes. The easiest way would probably be through my website. That's londonbridge.com. You can find Mike Babchek's episode at londonbridge.com slash babs. That's B-A-B-S. And Evans is found at londonbridge.com slash Cohen. That's C-O-H-E-N. Definitely the highest listened to shows in back-to-back session that I've ever had. And in a way, I hope that that continues with what I'm planning to do with this week's episode and next week's episode with this week's guest. Now, before I get into that, there's a couple of housekeeping items that I just want to throw your way and keep you guys educated on some of the different ways you can get in contact with the show. First and foremost, you can subscribe to the Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes, leave a nice rating, leave a nice review for me, fill out those little stars, and make the Bridge become a next-level show. The Bridge has its own show number, as I'm sure some of you are aware. You can call or text the show at any time at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Feel free to leave a voicemail or fire over a text with your questions, your comments, your hot takes, and the best ones will be read on the air. There's actually a couple of questions that I have in the inbox that I will be getting to in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to be on that list as well, please feel free to chime in. You can also subscribe to the Bridge newsletter, which is something I'm planning to start sending out shortly. That will basically run down some of the different things you'll hear in that week's show, as well as the possibility of teasing who the guest will be in the weeks to follow or some of the different things we'll be talking about in the future. 
you can subscribe to that at londonbridge.com slash email. And again, that's not something I'm planning to bombard you with daily. It's just something to maybe remind you that the show is out and also give you all the different outlets where you can listen to The Bridge to make your life that much easier. So earlier this week, the 2016 Rio Olympics came to a close. And though one of the people running for president seems to think that we need to make America great again, this year's Olympics was another reminder of just how great our country already is. The interesting thing when it comes to sports in America is that when you think of the most popular of those, there's only about four that immediately come to your mind, which would be the NFL, the NBA. Unfortunately, MLB has fallen down in that list, but it's still there. And then you could throw in NHL, perhaps professional soccer if you're into that sort of thing. But then it kind of peters out toward the end. What's great about the Olympics is even though it might seem we're only great and we only excel in certain major sports, we go over to these Olympics and just whip people's asses in pretty much everything. And I don't say that to be cocky. I just say that because it's the truth. The United States won 121 medals this Olympics, which is a record for the United States, second to China at 70. So if you do the quick math there, that's 51 more medals than the next closest country. Great Britain, God bless their soul, wishes they probably still had us under their regime. They came in third with 67. To take that a step farther, the women of Team USA themselves won 27 gold medals, which would have given them the most golds in the world if they were just their own country. So that just goes to show you the dominance that the United States had at this year's Olympics, especially in some sports or some competitions that don't necessarily get the recognition that some of our major American sports do. And some of the more popular sports, aside from the USA basketball team winning another gold medal, was in the gymnastics and swimming competitions where it just seemed like there was a very good chance every event that a member of the United States would at least win a medal and had the possibility to win gold. Even though if you turn on your local television, you don't often see the chance to watch a swim meet or a gymnastics competition, nor would many people probably want to, which is why when this does come around, it it is nice to see the interest grow back in those two sports and give the respect to those athletes who work for four years to get to where they are and really are just amazing at what they do. I say all that to preface my next segment because while the Olympics brought forth several amazing stories, not all of the stories that came to light were good ones. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. U.S. Olympic swimmer Ryan Lochte is in hot water for lying about accusations that he and three of his teammates were robbed at gunpoint after a night of shenanigans at a local watering hole in Rio, Brazil. Before that night, the lead story from the male swimming side of the Olympics was the domination of Michael Phelps, and the only thing greener than Lochte's envy for Phelps was the watercolor in the diving pool. 
Lochte's initial story indicated that armed robbers, posing as police, pulled over their taxi, pulled out their guns, and told the swimmers to get on the ground. Lochte, perhaps under the impression that the armed robbers would recognize him from his renowned reality television show, What Would Ryan Lochte Do?, told the gentlemen he would not get on the ground since they had done nothing wrong. After one of the robbers reportedly pulled a gun to Lochte's head, cocked it, and told him to get down, Lochte said in the interview, quote, I put my hands up, I was like, whatever, end quote. The robbers took their money and Lochte's wallet, but not their cell phones, credentials, or the pair of Kanye West shoes worn by the swimmers, which Lochte posted on Snapchat on the night of the robbery with the caption, 6K Deep. Even though most of the available shoes in Rio could probably be found floating in the lagoon at the kayak races. Needless to say, questions were raised that the 12-time Olympic medalist had lied about his story, and soon Lochte was drowning in his own lies. He perhaps thought he could backstroke his way out of it and left his teammates out to dry in Rio, while he headed back to the United States. However, reports, videos, and testimonies were soon released detailing the night. After finishing their laps of the nightlife in Brazil, the four went to a gas station to find a restroom and decided to relieve themselves behind the building after not finding one inside. Lochte reportedly pulled down a sign off the brick wall in the back, which eventually led to armed security guards demanding money for the damages before sending the waterlogged athletes on their way. The 32-year-old bro has since apologized for over-exaggerating some parts of his stories and claimed he was still intoxicated when he told his first account of the tale. If anything, the man who tried to trademark this phrase literally pissed his money away as four of his sponsors recently announced they were dropping him. Perhaps Lochte would be wise to avoid the whirlpool of media responses and keep his once blue hair away from TV. Perhaps this could all have been avoided if he had just listened to his own advice. And I quote again, My philosophy is, if you're a man at night, you've got to be a man in the morning. End quote. I'm John Lund, for sports news, red like real news. On to this week's guest, and as I mentioned, I'm going to do things a little bit more differently than I usually do with my interviews. For starters, I have an incredibly exciting announcement coming in next week's show that will deal with the future of the Bridge Sports Podcast, when you'll be able to listen to it, and some of the different outlets that you'll be able to hear the show on. In layman's terms, the Bridge Sports Podcast will now be a national show, and I'll get more into that in next week's episode, so stay tuned for that. So I was lucky enough to get to interview George Sedano, who is the host of the George and Izzy show on ESPN Radio, which you can hear weeknights 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
he's had a pretty incredible journey from some humble beginnings in radio down in Miami to working his way up to a much larger scale, splitting his time between Miami and Los Angeles, eventually working his way to the ticket in Miami, which at the time of him working there had one of the best radio lineups in the industry. And we'll get into a little bit more of that in the interview itself. But he had to do a lot of work to get to where he is now on ESPN Radio, and it wasn't always smooth. He needed some luck along the way. So the reason I say this is a little bit different is because I was lucky to have a part two of sorts with The Morning Men, where I interviewed one of the hosts and then followed it up with the second host for the next episode. For my interview with George, I've decided to split it into two parts. Just because we got into so many things, I think all of the things we talked about are of relevance and are important, but I don't want to put that all on you in one episode, so you'd have to listen for an hour and a half and might lose interest halfway through. Not to say that I still don't expect you to lose interest in my show halfway through, which you probably already have at this point, but I'm hoping I can bring you back on with the voice of George Sedano and get into some of his stories. The first of what will be the two-part series, if you will, we'll get into how he fell in love with sports radio, working his way through college, some of his first radio jobs at mom-and-pop type stations, if you will, before finally making it at Fox Sports Radio and moving on from there. A couple stories of interest, which you could, of course, find in the show notes, include his starting five for an all-ESPN media pickup basketball team. So if you wanted to give him a call to play at the local courts and didn't know who he would bring along with him, you'll now be able to figure that out. There's also a fascinating story from his time working at that local station in Miami when he up and decided he was going to take his show to Radio Row at the Super Bowl. And at that time, if you were on Radio Row, you were the shit. And now it's kind of like everyone with a show gets on Radio Row and pretends they have relevance. And maybe that's something I'll try one day, because why the hell not? But at the time, it was an incredibly bold move, and it actually ended up paying off. He'll get into some of the opportunities that came from that, which include working at Fox Sports Radio, then eventually getting to the ticket, as I mentioned before, and some of the different things he was able to do there. And that's where we'll put a pause on things and wait until next week's show to talk about how he eventually ends up at ESPN Radio and makes that large leap of faith. We get into a lot of great stuff regarding working at ESPN. And we'll also get into the full story of George's most famous radio interview that if you check out YouTube right now, it should be one of the first results that come up. So he shared the complete story of how that day went. But as I mentioned, you'll have to wait until next week to find that out. But until then, I hope you enjoy the first part of his story. You can follow him on Twitter at Sedano ESPN. That's S-E-D-A-N-O ESPN. He does a great job on radio with Izzy. You might see him on TV once in a while or hear him filling in for some other shows. And it was a pleasure to get a chance to speak with him. I hope you enjoy both parts of the interview and come back for a major announcement next week. But until then, without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with George Sedano. He is the host of the George and Izzy Show on ESPN Radio weekdays from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And he's been kind enough to join the show. Sir, how are you?
Hey, John, I'm great, buddy. And yourself? I'm doing very well. I'm looking forward to speaking a little bit about some of the different things that you've been able to do throughout the years and the experiences you had on ESPN Radio. I wanted to start by turning the clocks back a little bit to a much younger George Sedano. When you were growing up in Miami, were there any influences from your childhood that might have helped gear you toward pursuing a career in broadcasting, or what made you start heading in that direction, if not? Um, man, uh, I would say I fell in love with Sports Talk Radio as a kid. Uh, I remember as a kid growing up, my dad had season tickets to the Dolphins, particularly. And, you know, I, we'd come back home and we'd be listening to whatever the post-game show was on, on the radio. And I kind of started to fall for it there. And as time went by, I found myself more and more as I grew up listening on, like, my alarm clock radio, you know, in the middle of the night. Right. Like I, would, I, I would, you know, whatever I was done watching TV or whatever, I would just flip on whatever was on late at night. At the time, it was a guy named Ed Kaplan who used to work at WQAM, he was kind of like the late night guy. Had been on forever, um, and he used to do 10 a 10 p.m. I'm sorry, until the last game ends. That was kind of his slogan, you know. And you know, usually it was about two o'clock in the morning. He would go at least till two a.m. or the last game ends. I think that was kind of the way he did it. And I used to think he was brilliant, you know. Like uh, I mean, I still do. I, I I haven't seen him in a long time, but it, I found him fascinating because he wasn't just like a traditional sports guy, right? Like he was actually an attorney who turned into a radio guy. Um, so I thought he always brought like something different to the table. Like he was super smart, um, which is what kind of attracted uh, him to me immediately. And I thought he was kind of like funny in a self-deprecating way. And, and I just found his personality very agreeable, really likable. Um, so I used to kind of, I used to listen. And then there were times where um, <laughs> like he, you know, back in the day, I mean, we're talking about the 90s, right? So there was no internet, and at least, at least I don't remember there being internet. Uh, if there was, it was maybe like AOL, like 1 or 2.0, right. things like that. But uh, I think most people on radio, obviously at that time, communicated with the audience either via phone or via fax. So I would send him, like, faxes in the middle of the night um, with, like, my takes and stuff, or, like, funny stuff, and and he would appreciate it on the air. Like, he'd read it and just kind of get a good chuckle on a lot of the stuff that I would send. And, you know, years later, I got a chance to meet him, of course, and uh, and just kind of tell him, hey, I was this guy who used to send you this, blah, 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 and got a pretty good kick out of it. But, yeah, he was probably the first guy that I'd listened to. And then, you know, after that show was over, you know, they'd run some of the late-night, like, overnight national stuff. And, you know, Scott Farrell was a guy who was on at that time. And then there was JP the Brick, who I got, both guys who I got to work with, actually, at one point in my career. Um, so I kind of fell in love with radio at a pretty young age, you know, just kind of as a, you know, a kid and into being really a teenager. For the sports side of things, did you play any sports in grade school or high school? I'm assuming you were watching a lot of sports on TV, especially living in Miami with the different sports teams that you had to have. Was that how you got involved in that sort of thing to pursue a broadcasting career in the sports industry? Well, I grew up initially, right? Like my dad is a big sports fan, right? So he was always watching baseball or boxing or whatever was on football, you know? So I as far back as I can remember before I was even, you know, I don't know, like a kid 
who can even really do much of anything. Like I, I did remember just my dad sitting there watching games. So I think that was kind of part of it. And yeah, as a kid growing up, you know, you, you play a bunch of different sports, right? Like you just kind of like partake in whatever was going on. Like remember I grew up in an era where we didn't have, like we had video games, right? But we had like Atari, you know, like right. it wasn't, and, and it was still cool. Don't get me wrong. We still totally were into it. Um, but I think my generation was still a generation that was really into playing outside, you know, and whether it was just me and my friends in the neighborhood playing football or baseball or even basketball, like we just always were outside. And, you know, I was in that generation of kids where I'd get up, you know, we'd go outside, we'd start playing, we'd come in for lunch, we'd go back outside and play like in the summer times. And, you know, we play until you know, the sun was coming down, you know, and your parents were like yelling for you to come back inside to eat dinner. Um, so I kind of grew up around that. And then, you know, in high school, I played a bunch of different sports. I think I took all that seriously. I, you know, I, I played volleyball. I played, my brother actually taught me to play tennis, which was uh, kind of fun. Like I actually was decent at it, but the one thing I did the most, um, throughout my time growing up, and I did it since I was like six years old, up until like through college, basically, um, was I did martial arts. Um, I taught karate to kids. That's how I made money in high school and college. And, you know, then I, that kind of evolved as I, as when I got in my twenties, that was kind of the dawn of MMA when it was still kind of the wild, wild west. So I kind of learned how to grapple and stuff. And, you know, I still did it. I haven't done anything like that in a very long time, which is kind of sad because I really wish I could, I could find someone to train with regularly. Um, just to stay in even you know better shape. Not that I'm in great shape now, but I'm I, you know I basically work out just so I can eat. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, so that was something that was a real passion of mine for a long, long time. But it's funny because I'm not as into MMA and the UFC now as maybe I was when I was younger. Like just into martial arts in general. Like I'll watch a good fight, but I I, I don't know. I don't. Maybe it's just fatigue, like mental fatigue. Um, you know, I certainly know what I'm watching, and I could. I could even describe and probably call the action, to be honest with you. But it's just, you know, it's, you know, I will watch the big fights. I'm not the guy who's sitting there watching the UFC every week, you know, like I'll, right. I'll watch maybe a pay-per-view a month. But yeah, that was basically me growing up. You know, I tried a little bit of everything, um, you know, and, you know, I played a lot of basketball as an adult, actually. More basketball as an adult than I probably even did as a kid. Like we used to have like these crazy media games when I was in Miami we probably did it for like five or six years. Every Tuesday night, we'd go to um, we'd go to my old high school, and we'd play from like nine o'clock to like midnight, full court, um, and we'd go at it for three hours. And some of those games got pretty heated and competitive. It was kind of fun. So if somebody's walking by your high school, they look in the gym door. Is that Jorge Sedano? Is that other people from ESPN? What is going on in there? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, I mean, at the time, were there anybody, yeah, I guess some guys were doing some stuff at ESPN at the time, but it was mostly local Miami guys. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Every Tuesday night, whatever, you know, we'd, we'd go at nine because usually that's whenever the last, you know, practice for whatever team was using the gym would be done with, you know, somewhere about eight, eight thirty, And then we'd get in there, you know, and we'd just meet at nine and then we'd get out there, you know, and it, usually at least 11 o'clock, most nights till about midnight. Um, but yeah, we played a lot, man. I'm talking about five, six years straight every week we played and, uh, it was fun. Like it was, and really competitive. That's probably when I was in the best shape of my life, to be honest. Like we started as, as a small group, um, like maybe the first couple of weeks, like it was probably like, you know, three on three. And then within like two or three weeks, it became a full court thing where it got so big where, 
you know, that we'd have to, we'd have to have teams sit out. Like sometimes we'd have 15 or 20 guys. So we basically have to rotate in right. like different, uh, different teams of five. Like it was pretty, like it was pretty like fun back then. So if you had to pick your top five, this is going a little bit off the beaten path here, but if you're picking your top five for a pickup game against other ESPN personalities and you could go from the guys in Bristol, the guys in Miami, who are your top five? Who do you want on the court with you? So you would be one. Then you need your four guys. Uh, well, I definitely take Izzy uh, for sure. Um, I probably I, I haven't played with him, but I've heard Ryan Rosillo is really good. Um, I'd take a mean. Uh, I know he's very good. Uh, Dave McMiniman, who covers the Cleveland Cavaliers for us, is actually really good too. So that's who. And then I'd probably take Chris Broussard. He actually played Division Three college basketball. That's not a bad squad. I don't know if Ryan Rosillo, depending on how his gym schedule is going, how he might be shooting. You know, you got to get used to the threes and the mid-range jumpers after you go lift. You... Well, we're we'll be, we'll be playing in indoor courts, man. Like we're not playing, we're not playing outdoors. We're too old for that. Just get it to him in the post. He'll make things happen. So, getting back on track yeah, to your professional career, I know you went to Florida International, and I was wondering if that was a move that was. For broadcasting, if you knew that's what you wanted to study, no. if that's kind of something you well, fell into. Well, I knew into. that's what I, I knew that. Yeah, I knew that's what I wanted to study. But that was I. I had gotten into a couple of schools, um, but I, and I wanted to go away to be honest with you. Um, but I couldn't find anyone to go with me. I didn't want to go alone um, right. because I felt like that was just going to be a pain in the ass. So I, I ended up staying here, and I went there, um, and I actually, you know. I, it was okay. Like, look, man, there was nothing I did in college that prepared me for this job. Like zero. <laughs> okay. So like, that's just the, re like, this is a business that until you're actually doing it, like you have no idea what you're getting into like that. And I think anyone who uh, tells you otherwise is lying to you. That's just the way I look at it. Like school prepared me nothing for this job. So you mean that local AM station that they might have had for radio or the school newspaper it doesn't, doesn't prepare you for this? Anything doesn't prepare you for anything. Like no way, especially now with the like the media landscape the way it is now. Like even back then, it didn't prepare you for anything. But now I can I can't even fathom how it would prepare you. First of all, you have to deal with much crap. Like you know, there's so many things that you can that you have to do um, just to get on the air somewhere. Like whether it's radio or television. I mean, you know, I, I, no, no, no. Maybe, maybe the print, now, again, I'm not a print guy. So maybe the print guys have a different experience because, you know, most of these schools have, uh, you know, pretty good newspaper department. Right. But, um, but I would say from like an electronic side, no way. Like they don't, there's, there, I mean, maybe things have changed now, but I mean, at least back then it didn't, it didn't help one bit. Like I wasn't ready to be on camera like now, like I am now, or even do radio like I was. I had to do radio. The only way I got good at radio is by actually doing real radio. Well, what helped is you went the internship route, right? That's really the steps you have to take to kind of get into yes. that business and yes. then see what yes. that consists of. Right. You have to really see what it is on a ground level. You have to really, I mean, and this doesn't just go for the internship part of it. I mean, this pretty much goes for the entirety of your career. Like, you have to forge relationships, I think. You know, look, are there guys that don't need to forge relationships because they're the most talented people in the world? Yeah, but that's a very small percentage of people in this business. Right. Uh, I think most people are in it because I, I would say, this is the way I would describe it. There's like this like two or three percent of people that are just brilliant, right? 
Greg Levitard and like the Keith Obermans and the Bob Costas of the world, like those type of people, right? Um, but they're like in the very small two or three, four percent of people. Then there's like a huge chunk of like 80 some odd percent that are very good at what they do. And they fall into different categories based on what their strengths are. Um, but those people, it's, it is about forging relationships and, you know, busting your ass and just, you know, eating some crows sometimes on the way up, like all of that, you know, works. I'm not saying those guys didn't have to work hard, so don't get me wrong. But those guys are just so brilliant that it was just, it's immediate. Like you can just kind of tell like right away, you know? So I want us to take a deep breath and try to go through some of the different places you've ended up in the industry before we've gotten to where we are now. I know one of the more original jobs, one of the first gigs was early, early 2000s at WAFMAM. Right. Do you realize that 1700 at that at that time um, was they used to call it the experimental band. Um, I initially your AM radio used to only go to 1600, and when radios turned digital, you know because remember, I mean, you go way back. Like radios actually just had knobs, right? <laughs> and so you would kind of program it with a knob, and it didn't have a digital display. So it wasn't until digital became a thing that they expanded the band on AM to 17, from 1600 to 1700. So at that time, I think a decent number of cars had like the digital stuff, but it wasn't for, like, it wasn't like a given. Right. Um, so I was on this little piddly radio station that some guy had started and look, man, I had just got out of college. So I didn't care. Like a job was a job was a job, but it was great and awful at the same time. Great in the sense that I got a chance to really do stuff. Um, and really learn what it was like to do radio. Um, I worked like 12 hour days. I did everything you could ask. Like there were times, like when I first started, I was running the board. I ended up doing updates. I eventually got a chance to host shows. Um, but like most of these mom and pop situations, they kind of, there's a lot of bumps in the road and people got let go and, you know, people weren't getting paid and eventually the thing went belly up. And, you know, I went out of the business basically for nine months at that point. Where I was wondering, am I am I am I in the am I doing the right thing? You know, right. and I had a I had a friend who uh, had a courier business, and I needed to make money. You know what I mean? Like just to pay my bills. <laughs> so right. I I did that for nine months and just kind of sitting there listening to people doing radio, and I was just like, this is crazy. Like I'm listening to these people, and I would say I'm better than ninety percent of them. Um, and it drove me insane. Um, I also because I was young and brash and bold at that time and didn't give three craps about anything, I was ripping everyone on the big station at the time at QAM and the GM basically blackballed me. Like I, I, he wouldn't let me work there. Uh, and they were the only game left in town. It was funny because those guys, even though we were basically a, you know, a fly on the elephant's ass to them, they talked about us like, if anything, they gave us more promotion, free promotion than anything else because they talked about us so much. They actually did a funeral on their morning show when the station went belly up, which is kind of funny, but also pretty tasteless if you think about it. Um, and honestly, I don't think I've ever forgotten that. Like, and I remember exactly who the three guys were. Um, you know, some of them have gone on to, to be great, to have, do great things. Um, you know, some of them have been okay. And the other guy, you know, there's one guy who, who kind of like, you know, went by the wayside, but 
I, uh, I, I'm the type of guy that, look, man, I, uh, I can move on from stuff. I can forgive, but I'll never forget. Like I remember that stuff. And, uh, and it's funny, like, like funny in an ironic way that, you know, the way things tend to work out, but, uh, yeah, that was a weird experience, man. Um, and then obviously a lot of doubt for a few months after that. And then I got a chance to kind of jump on at a clear channel station and, uh, which was nine forty at the time. And, they had they weren't doing very much local at all. I think they were doing like an hour local show in the afternoon, and they asked me to come on as like a freelancer to do like updates and stuff. That I did, and eventually, what ended up happening was the guy who did that one hour show got fired, uh, and the other two guys that were on staff full time didn't want to do the show. So my boss was like, "Hey, do you want to do it?" And I was like, "Yeah." So I did it, and it was like an hour for like I don't know maybe a month or two, and then eventually he just gave me two hours. And eventually that grew from there too. And, you know, things kind of went from there. I ended up getting my first network gig after that uh, at Fox in Los Angeles from that, doing that little two hour show or whatever it was in Miami. So then you ended up with the third shift on Fox, the weekday overnight show. And you were said to be known as the Dean of late night sports talk. How does one get the (laughs) moniker like that? Yeah, it's such an awful moniker, to be honest. I have no idea. Somebody created that, and I certainly wasn't the guy who did that. I think the reason they did that was, and there's kind of a fun story, right, to that, because, uh, and this is one of those stories that if you're in the business, you should listen to, and and if you feel, like, really strongly about something, like, you have to, sometimes you have to take risks, right? So I get hired at the network, and I'm doing this overnight show, and um, interestingly enough, even before I get hired, right, I'm like a candidate for this late night show. And I wouldn't move to Los Angeles at the time because my dad was sick. So I told them, look, can I just do it for Miami? You know, and I'll fly out to L.A. every so often. And they were like, nah, we'd rather have somebody here. I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. Then, you know, make your decision, you know, make whatever decision you want to make. Right. So they hire another guy. This guy was just kind of like washed up. You know, he had kind of sort of been a name in other, another in like Detroit or something like that for a while. He, you know, look, radio, sports talk radio in the nineties was full of a lot of these guys who were like kind of crazy. Like they didn't, they just thought like it was the wild, wild West and they could just kind of do or say anything. And this guy seemed to be one of those type of guys. So anyway, long story short, he gets fired a week later for something he did. We don't have to get into that. So he gets let go after a week. And they come back to me and they're like, hey, will you do the show? And I said, yeah, but I'm still not moving to L.A. full time. Um, you know, my dad's sick and, and I'm not I'm not going to do that. So I got I convinced them to let me do it mostly out of Miami. And at that time, I also like kind of like things were happening for me. I got the heat job doing pre and post game and halftime on the radio. Uh, Clear Channel had the rights to them at the time, too. So it made sense for me to be in Miami because of all the things that were happening. Right. Uh, the other part of it, actually, I skipped over a whole part of what actually how i even got the damn job real quick i'm trying i'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible because i'm now completely disjointed here for you um so i'm at that 940 station in miami the big thing to do at the time right like we're talking about this is early 2000s like to me i felt like all the big shows were doing radio row at the super bowl and this is when radio row like kind of meant something at the super bowl there wasn't a ton of people there right you it were in if you were there really- Right. Really big stations and really big shows on local stations. And that was it. It wasn't like now where there's 500 radio stations. Um, so, right. You were it if you were there. So I told my boss I wanted to go there. 
and do a show from there. And he was like, because my competitor was there. And um, and he was like, eh, I don't have it in the budget. Mind you, we're only doing a couple of hours of local radio. Everything else was syndicated on that station. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do it myself. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. So I booked the flight. I booked the hotel. I ended up staying at a roadway in down the street from the uh, convention center. because I couldn't afford anything else because of the price gouging because it was Super Bowl week. And uh, I set up all the stuff through the NFL, like, you know, all the... You know, whatever I had to do from a logistical standpoint to set up my broadcast, I was going to take the whole damn broadcast myself and set it up myself and do be my own engineer. And then, so I showed I, my boss, I did all these things. And he was like, he looked at me like I was crazy. And I'm like, look, I'm going, whether you like it or not. So, you know, this is, it is what it is. So he just kind of looked at me, whatever. And was like, all right, fine. He's like, well, the guy who runs the network at Fox, which was basically owned by Clear Channel at the time, guy named Andrew Ashwood. He, uh, my boss says, look, it's an old friend of mine. I'll just let him know you're going and, and, you know, see if they can just kind of take care of you. You know, that way if something goes wrong, technically they could, they have an engineer there to help you. Right. So I go out there, um, you know, I'm getting my stuff set up that Monday morning. Uh, Andrew Ashwood, the vice president of Fox comes over and introduces himself. He's like, Hey, I'm Andrew. Peter told me to, you know, uh, he said some great things about you. He said, I want to watch out for you. Whatever you need, we're here for you. Just consider us family, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, man, no problem. Thanks. I appreciate it. So later that afternoon, I actually happened to be situated like maybe two tables away from them. So that week, because it was Super Bowl week, my boss allowed me to do a four-hour show that week. So I'm sitting there, and show starts 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm just ripping, like riffing, going, you know? And then after the first break, like 15 minutes in, Andrew Ashford, the VP of Fox, comes back up to me and he's like, gives me his business card. He's like, hey, can you get a, can you get a drink with me after the show tonight? I was like, yeah. And he basically offered me a job then. Like at first I was doing like a couple of weekend things for them. And eventually I got the overnight opportunity. But it was funny. So when I came back to Miami, as I, before I came back to Miami, my boss had sent me an email in Miami or from Miami. And he's like, hey, so... I got it figured out in the budget. Just give me all your receipts and I'll take care of it, which was great because I wasn't making a ton of money then anyway. So yeah, so that's how I got the Fox DA. So fast forward to, I get hired, right, to do the overnight. And at the time, there were two other guys doing shows on national radio. There was a guy named Kevin Wheeler, who now works in St. Louis. Good guy. Um, But he was doing a single man show. You know, he's very deliberate in his... um, delivery you know it, there wasn't a lot of flash right tons of per- personality he's just you know, he's doing a basic sports talk show and i don't mean that in a demeaning way i just mean that that's just his personality his personality is very straightforward you know um you know no goofiness no laughing no silliness no crazy yelling and screaming like me which that's kind of what my thing is like i'm loud and cuban and crazy like you know like when i get when i get crazy get really passionate about it. And then the other guy at ESPN was a guy named Todd Wright, who had a very similar approach. So I had this crazy fun crew to work with from LA. Now, granted, I was in Miami, but I had met them because I had flown out there already to meet them and just kind of sign the contract, all that crap. So they were like really fun when I went out there that first week that I did the show there uh, before I came back to Miami. I had this update woman named Karen Kay. She was a trip. She used to be like an FM DJ. And she was just like the update person. I had my board ops, kind of Josh Gears, like he was kind of like this dorky, nerdy, fun, like white kid, like just like super nerdy, but like super funny. Um, and then my board, my producer is this guy named Marcel, who um, black kid, 
he was awesome. Like he was like my the yin to my yang. Like we very rarely disagree, um, but we'd always laugh at each other and kind of make fun of each other. It was fun. So we kind of had this really good rapport. And to be honest, I mean, I haven't done that show in almost 10 years. And to this day, I will have people tweet me and be like, hey, man, I loved it when you used to work on that show late at night on Fox. Like, it's crazy wow. to me that there are people that, that will still send me a message every once in a while about that show. Um, and we kind of created this little morning zoo in the middle of the night. And my boss hated it. Like, he just hated it. He's like, I hired you to be you. I don't want to hear this morning zoo thing. And I was like, listen, man, like, I'm telling you, this thing works. Like, why would you want me to be like the other guys? He's like, well, you're not like the other guys. You're loud and bold and brash. And I'm, he's like, I want you to be more like Romy. And I'm like, yeah, Romy's cool, but that's not as fun. You know, the, the reality was, since I was on in the middle of the freaking night, I was able to kind of just do whatever the hell I wanted to do. And eventually it worked itself out. And so for about six months, the first six months of me doing that job, they kind of fought me on it. And then what ended up happening was it kind of gained a lot of steam. So at that time, this is pre like internet being a big thing, streaming being a big thing. Um, you know, you relied on affiliates, you know, and the number of affiliates you had. So all of a sudden the number of my affiliates exploded because at that time of night, we were getting the kind of more dry, straightforward sports talk or you were getting alien talk with George Norrie, you right. know, in the middle of the night, you know? So we were kind of the only fun show to listen to at that time of night. So the uh, different affiliates, I'm not even talking about sports stations. I'm talking about like news stations picked us up. Like it was crazy. So, um, you know, the guy who ran the affiliates called me and he's like, Hey, we just picked up like 40 or 50 new affiliates. And I was like, awesome. So then my boss came to me and he's like, okay, you know what? I was wrong. Which by the way, you will rarely hear in this business from one of your bosses for him to admit or her to admit that they were wrong. Like that rarely happens. Um, and I've been lucky. It's actually happened to me twice in my life. So he's like, I was wrong. Keep doing what you're doing. And I did it. And it was an unbelievably successful run for about three years or so. And to this day, I stay in touch with those people. And I still think it was the best radio I ever did was with that group. Cause I just had the best chemistry with them as a unit that I've ever had. And I've had great units since. Like I had great units in Miami. I have a great unit now, but I just think that, you know, you look, I, if I had to think back and that's not a knock again, because I've had great units after that, but I just think there was, that was like a really special show where I think Fox dropped the ball was they didn't want us to be anything more than the night show because they had so many other people on their contract. And, in, you know, at that time they had some big name type guys in the, in the daytime slots and, you know, it was what it was, but I, uh, you know, my dad, then what ended up happening was my dad's health took a turn for the worse again. And I was like, you know what? I can't, because I was splitting time between Miami. And I was like, you know what? I just need to be in Miami full time. So I, I went back to Miami and I worked at the ticket for a long time. And honestly, it's crazy there because I, I met some of my friends in the industry while I worked there. Uh, you know, Levitard and Stugatz, Mike Ryan, Boog Shambi and, and all these guys. Uh, we probably had, Fox said this when I left it. You know, this is a guy who's been doing radio, you know, for 20 some odd years. And he's like, that lineup you're going to have in Miami is probably going to be the best lineup in the country. Um, and I, I, to this day, will tell you it was uh, for that amount of time that we were all there together, which wasn't very long, to be honest, because Boog left. And, you know what I mean? He went to just do baseball full time. But right. there was a time there I thought, I did think we had the best lineup in the country. I don't think people 
realize how talented as you mentioned that group was like when you do some research or when you hear where some personalities got their start and you find out that they worked at Miami 790 the ticket it's like wow so they were all under the same roof at the same time I have two questions mm-hmm. regarding that the first is for your Fox show did you get any backlash from maybe the listeners or those radio purists, if you will, for the different types of things you were doing on your show? I think that setup is more well accepted now, but I don't think people that might be listening might realize that when you were doing that at the time, that wasn't really the norm in sports radio like you might hear about it now. No, absolutely not. I, it was right, You're right in what I'm saying. It absolutely was not the norm. Um, doing morning zoo outside of the morning wasn't the norm at all. Uh, so it was met with a ton of resistance, including by my bosses. <laughs> um, but, and, and certainly the fans, you know, like people in the audience, because they were used to a certain thing, but I think we conditioned them very quickly. Like, this, listen, man, like, I never pat myself on the back, man. Like, I beat myself up more than anyone. But that radio show was really freaking good. Like, really freaking good, Okay. I'll never forget the first show I ever did at ESPN with Ryan Rosillo. He actually brought that up to me. He was like, yo, I used to listen to you in Boston on that show. Like, you guys were crazy. It was hilarious. And I was like, yeah, man, like, we had a really good time. Um, So I think what ended up happening was we really, we kind of created this Howard Stern sports thing in the middle of the night. Um, And, yeah, it was met with a lot of resistance at first. And, look, I'm not this pioneer by any stretch of the imagination. Like, were there a lot of people doing it at the time? No. Um, but it just, like, I'm a type of person that when it comes to radio, I think, you know, when something feels right very quickly, like to me, I know something's going to work immediately. And I know when it's not going to work immediately. And I've worked with a lot of different people on radio and television. And I know when chemistry is there to me, chemistry happens instantaneously. If you have instant to instant chemistry with people, this thing is going to be great. And I had that instant chemistry with those three other people from day one. And that just doesn't happen very often. So when you have something like that, I think it, um, I think it can be special. Um, and like I said, you know, for those, you know, I still get people every once in a while who will mention that to me, um, which I think is kind of like really flattering, actually. Uh, but yeah, it was met with a ton of resistance, and it was, uh, and, but it was still the funnest thing I've ever done uh, in radio. I think. Regarding the ticket, you end up with your name on your own show. In the late morning, Mm -hmm. early afternoon, you're leading into Dan Lebitard's show. And then you eventually Mm -hmm. go on to become the highest rated morning show in Miami, which is a complete reversal in a way from what you were doing at night with Fox Sports. But when you were with the ticket, when you started developing your craft even more, did you get the feeling that you were part of something special, especially with the different types of co-workers that you were surrounded by and some of the different things you were able to do because of that platform you were on? Yeah, listen, I don't think there's any question that was the case. Um, I think immediately when you were working there, you kind of got the sense you were working. Um, like, again, it's like my boss had told me, uh, by Lafont, like, you're going to be working at a station that has the best uh, lineup in the country. Like, it is a network-level lineup. And it really was, because if you think about it, everybody who was working there at the time, like, we had Sid Rosenberg in mornings. Um, you know, and Sid has gone on. You know, Sid worked nationally a couple places. Sid works in New York now. Um you had me and Boog, right? Boog has gone on to be this great national broadcaster. You know, I've gone on to ESPN, and obviously Dan and Stugatz, their show, you know, has, has had tons of success at ESPN as well. So, yeah, you kind of knew it right away. Like, 
uh, I think that that was that was that. I think the only issues we had was in the early stages because it was another, at least initially, it was a mom and pop organization too. Like I was fearful of it. Like let me give you a quick story. Like when they started that station in 2004, it was the exact same time I got the offer from Fox, and Stu Gatz was the general manager at the time, and he came to me. And he wanted me to be, uh, they had hired Joe Rose to do mornings. He's a longtime morning guy in Miami. He's at QAM now. He's been there most of his career. And he wanted me to be Joe Rose's co-host. And I was like flattered, but I was having been through the, the, uh, the first job where it was a mom and pop situation and, you know, I saw the money run out. Right, literally. Right. I was, I was terrified. You know, I was like, no way. I'm not doing that. I'm going to go work for a big network. Uh, even if it's in the middle of the night, because remember, I was the kid listening to the alarm clock radio in the middle of the night, like growing up wanting to be those guys I was listening to. So to me, doing late night radio nationally was like checking off something off the bucket list. Like this is what, like at that time, I thought that was the greatest job I ever had. And looking back at it, like I said, it's still probably the most fun I've ever had doing radio. Um so, like, I went for stability and ended up making the right decision because it was it ended up being a great time for me there. And, I, you know, I met my wife in Los Angeles because of it. Like, a lot of good things came from that. So, you know, then I came back to Miami and I, you know, I told, I, when I was coming, when I was thinking of coming back to Miami, it, there was a lot of reasons for it. Number one, my boss at Fox, Andrew Ashwood, had, uh, had cancer. And, and it was bad. Like, it wasn't going... Like, I didn't know how much longer it was going to be around. Yeah, it was tough, man. Like, it was one of those things where I uh, I had dealt, as I mentioned, with my dad's health situation, and he had gotten cancer. And in this business, man, if, if the guy who hired you isn't there, like, it's, you know, it, you, you're kind of running... You're rolling the dice a little bit. Right. So when I decided that I wanted to come back to Miami, the timing obviously wasn't great because he was dealing with his bouts with chemo. He had bile done. I'm sorry, he had pancreatic cancer. So it was obviously something that was going to be very quickly. That go, He was going to go very quickly. Uh, he was going to fight it. Uh, he might have actually had bile duct and pancreatic cancer, now that I think about it, because it, it spread. So I was going through, mulling all this over, and I was like, man, I can't just email this guy and say I'm going to quit. Like, that's not the way I can do this. Right. Like, this guy, this guy made my career. I, he gave me my first six-figure job. Um, you know, I, I would be, I wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for him. I owe him at least a face-to-face conversation. So I, I, I was, uh, working out of the Clear Channel building in Miami and there was a new program director there. My old boss who had basically hired me back in 2001 or whatever, wasn't there anymore. And, um, and there was a new guy there who I didn't really know. And I like him now. We actually get along now, but I don't think we ever could work together because we just, you know, we just don't mesh very well. Um, but he, I had come to him and I told him, look, I want to come back home. Like, do you have anything here? And there wasn't a sports station in the cluster at the time for clear channel. So I told him, look, I wouldn't even consider doing general talk. Like I, you know, one of my secret closeted passions is politics and it's always been that way. So I was willing to kind of even leave sports at that time, you know, and go try to be the next, uh, you know, Political talker, right? So but he didn't see it. He didn't want to take that chance. So he's like, nah, I don't think I have anything for you, whatever. But I said, all right, well, I'll keep you posted on what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of shop around. So I had opened things up to QAM and to uh, the 790, to the ticket. And I talked to Stu Gatz, who I had known for a long time. 
And, uh, and he was like, yeah, man, we've got a spot for you. Like, this, this is where you need to be. You fit exactly what we're doing. Everybody's young. Everybody's in their 30s. Like, this is where you need to be. And at that time, I mean, 2007, I was 30. So, I mean, it, was, it could not have worked out better. Um, actually, I was 29 when all this was going on. This is like the summer. I, my birthday's in September. So I'm like, okay, I was kind of make the decision between QAM and the ticket. And QAM was offering me a paired show with a guy who I liked, but I didn't really, I'd never worked with him. And I just didn't feel like we'd mesh together. Um, and I, look, man, I've been doing this a long time, right? So I feel like I, I have a pretty good ear for this thing, you know? Um, so I know what, what'll work and what won't work. And I flew out to California to try to find, you know, meet with my boss, even though he was dealing, you know, with his chemotherapy. And, um, you know, I figured I'd go out there and do shows for as long as it took until he was in the office. So I went out there for a week. He never showed up. I just extended my trip by another like five days just to see if he'd show up. And eventually he got there before I, you know, my, my second extension, my extension was over. And, in between that, the guy who I was technically still working for at Clear Channel in Miami was kind of harassing me almost. <laughs> he was like, I know you're leaving and this, that, and the other, and <laughs> I'm going to lock you out of the building. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Look, he's like, I know you're going to the ticket. And I'm like, well, I, first of all, I'm glad you know that because I haven't signed a thing. I haven't even decided between the two sports stations. Um, clearly, I'm about to eliminate you because you told me you didn't have anything for me. Uh, but there is a possibility I stay at Fox, too. So you, you want to lock me out of the building. I mean, you can take that up with management. I mean, this is how it became a real big pissing match. So I just told him, and I said, now do me a favor. I want to consult with Andrew about what the best move for me is. Like, I trust him. No offense, I don't trust you. And I said it just like that. And he was, I said, so do me a favor. Just don't tell him anything. Like, I want to talk to him myself. He's like, fine, fine, fine. So the next morning... Again, I'm waking up to all these voicemails, like, you're leaving and cursing, and I'm going to lock you out again. The same conversation. I'm like, you know what? I'm not even calling this guy. I'm like, enough. He's an a-hole. So I drive. I find out that Andrew's in the office. I drive to the office. He, he was this big guy, man. I mean, big, okay? Like 350, like something like that. And he had lost a ton of weight, obviously, um, with the disease. But still big, you know? And he, he came, he gave me this big bear hug, and, and that's just who he was. He was like a great connector and just like big hugger, you know, like that's, he was awesome. And he's like, so tell me about this 780 thing. And I was like, and I looked at him, I'm like, I can't believe this bleeping guy told you. He's like, oh man, he's been blowing up my voicemail and my email <laughs> for like two <laughs> days. And I'm like, this is crazy. He's like, just come into my office, let's talk about it. So we talk about it, and I told him, here are the two options. You know, and he's like, well, look, you can stay here. Here's your contract if you want to stay here. And he showed it to me. And it was a lot of money. Um, but I was tired of working overnight. I was also tired of, um, you know, working late nights took its toll on me after a while. Like, it felt like the three years felt like 10. And, and I just told him, look, this has nothing to do with you um, and the job. I love the job. I just, I, I can't do the hours anymore. And my dad, he's like, look, man, I get it. Like, look at me. I get it. You know, look at my situation. So he's like, go to the ticket. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah. And that's when he told me to the best lineup in the country, blah, blah, blah. So I eventually get hired to go to the ticket. And I work for Stugatz. And yeah, as you, as you asked, like immediately you knew, you just knew. And we became kind of an instant family, man. Like, you know, Levitard would invite us to his family's Thanksgiving and everybody would show up. And his family used to have like an Easter party at like a park. Everybody would show up. 
And it legitimately was, and still is, even though we live in different parts of the country now, for the most part. Like, I don't live in Miami full-time anymore. Um, it's still that. Like, every Christmas, I get together with Dan and his brother and his parents and my wife and my daughter and, you know, the girlfriends, uh, you know, and all that. You know, their immediate family. And, and we have a blast and we have a good time and we have a few drinks and, you know, and we, we still get together regularly. Like it's, you know, we've been, we've been there for each other's most important moments, uh, you know, toughest moments, like weddings, funerals, you right. know, you, you name it. You know what I mean? Like everybody's been there for each other and still is there. So yeah, there is a bond there that still exists, uh, from that station, uh, particularly me and Dan and Stugatz and that whole group, Mike Ryan and, and boob, but yeah, like, and even beyond that, extended beyond that, um, to an extent, but just the, those guys there, like we all still talk like Boog is up in New York. So I actually see him whenever I'm in the Northeast, I, I try to connect with him, but yeah, like that's, it's, it was a special place to work at that time. And, and it created a really special bond where you, we created our own little family. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can call or text into the show at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Please feel free to leave a voicemail or a text message dealing with a question, a hot take, or a comment, and the best ones will get read on air. You can subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or for John Lund under Artists. You can also find The Bridge on the Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn apps. And you can also subscribe to The Bridge newsletter by visiting londonbridge.com email for weekly updates and a behind-the-scenes look of the next show and who our next featured guest might be. On the next episode of The Bridge, we will get into part two of our interview with George Sedano, going over some of the different things he's been able to do at ESPN Radio, some of his most memorable interviews, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. <laughs>